Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. And recently, Katie rightfully accused me of spending my time in continuing education workshops of texting and goofing off on sending gifts and comics to people. And we've built on, on that conversation kind of off the show of what if messages get sent to the wrong people, like clients? And I think we're going to dive into maybe some of those funny and serious stories that come along with that today. But Katie, you're often the victim of some of my board <laughs> sessions. <laughs> yes, I am. I am. I am victim to a lot of your texting, in fact. We keep things very appropriate between the two of us that we're very good friends, that a lot of how we are on air is exactly how we are off the air. But there's also some fun stories that have come up, some stories that some of you have shared on social media with us, some that we've picked up from some of the other online groups that we're a part of. And in one particular case, there's one that we picked up on from the disciplinary actions of the California Board of Behavioral Sciences. That's kind of a warning that goes along with this. So maybe let's start off with the serious and then back into the maybe more fun ones? Yeah, I mean, I think it is always good to try to end on a hilarious note because this first one isn't really funny at all. I think it's a little disturbing. And so you know more of the details because this is the stuff that you like to, to dig into, Kurt, to really understand our profession and the laws and ethics around it. But tell us a little bit more about the disciplinary action. So I'm not going to get super deep into the details out of the respect for the parties involved and also just to not spend the entirety of this episode talking about it. But more or less what happened is that a therapist had set an appointment with a client through text message that they were working through telehealth anyway, but in order to set a, a session, it was, hey, we'll talk tomorrow at five o'clock or whatever it is. A little bit later, the therapist texted who she thought was her consultant and had referred to a client by a nickname. And as you can guess, that text message didn't go to the consultant. It went back to the client that she had texted earlier in the day. And the client found the nickname to be pertinent enough to some of the stuff that was going on in their session, but also found the nickname offensive. 
Yeah, and that's a tough one because it was clear from some of the stuff that was written up that that there was some communication back and forth. The therapist was definitely uh, trying to repair what was going on. There was some missteps there that happened, and it was it turned into a disciplinary action, and and so we can leave it there. But I think what I take from this is that there was a therapist being a human being and a flawed human being, as we all are, and made a mistake and got a disciplinary action because of a a text, a mistaken text. And that's tough. It's hard to think about that because I think, I know I've had a misplaced text. It was very benign. I don't know that the person actually thought that it knew that it came from me because it was from a different number actually. But I can't imagine having one of the texts that I'm sending to my buddy Kurt that I think is hilarious going to one of my clients. Not that I say anything that's inappropriate necessarily, but it just, it's so different than the context of my relationships with my clients. And to think if that were to happen, that I could be facing disciplinary action is kind of terrifying. I'm not quite ready to jump off of that case just yet, because one of the things that came out of this was the expert testimony from the expert on behalf of the complainant, the client who received that text. The expert on that case went so far as to say that therapists should not be texting their clients under any circumstances. Mm, I don't know if I agree with that. I completely disagree with that because there are platforms now where the entirety of therapy is done through text that the ethics codes. And I know that the NASW ethics codes have recently pushed more for utilizing technology within therapeutic relationships, maybe not to the extent of doing the entirety of therapy through text, but that it really largely ignores the 21st century that we exist in. Now I'm really kind of at a loss for why this was a suggestion that was to be made because I've always operated under my informed consent saying something to the effect of my texting policy is to set up sessions, set up phone calls, but no clinical work. And this has been something where I want, if my clients are going to text me to have nice concrete boundaries, I don't want to have to try to interpret what somebody's saying through their text. If there's a deeper emotional thing that I pick up on when we're talking through video session, or if we're even in the room, that there's so much more of that texting process that gets left out in trying to interpret all those deeper feelings. My my informed consent is pretty similar. I, I definitely try to really keep uh, limits to scheduling a session, scheduling a phone call, because I think that being in person, doing a video call or doing a even a phone call, there's a little more context and nuance that can be provided that helps us to be better therapists in the space. I mean, I do open the door and hopefully we can have a conversation with a therapist or or an organization that provides text therapy so we can really understand it better. But for me, until I I really learn more, I, I have a difficult time understanding how that operates. And so for me, until I really learn about it, I'm going to hold that boundary of texting is really for scheduling and for potentially canceling or, or rescheduling, it's it's for the stuff that is logistical and not for clinical content. And I actually have that for my email as well. I think that one gets uh, run over a, a bit more and I have to really keep reminding 
email's not secure, let's not do therapy over email. But I know, and, I, and you probably experience this a lot too, there's times when there's a parent or somebody that can't get into session, they find it very helpful potentially to send an email prior to a kid coming in just to give some context to the therapist. So, so I think there's that piece of being able to really identify how we're going to use these electronic forms of communication in a way that's going to support the therapy and not end up in some horrible disciplinary action because something goes awry. For a little bit more advice on this, listen to our episode with Dr. Melissa Hall. She talks about some of the situations as far as informed consent of how to address this as well, and to also look at some of the resources that she points to on that. But when it comes to this kind of texting, the the society that we live in does make it super convenient for people to leave late, get stuck in traffic, be able to text you, I'll be there in five minutes. That does make some of this stuff a little bit more convenient that isn't quite necessarily as spelled out and even a very black and white informed consent. That if you have an informed consent that says, I will not accept text from you, and then you get a text from a client who's late to session, that's pointing you back to needing to talk about that policy. Yeah, I think making sure the informed consent covers texting in this day and age is critical. It's so important. And if it is something that you are open to considering, that informed consents are something that can be modified, that you create an addendum to the original informed consent that spells out whatever new rules or policies that you're going to be implementing or how you're going to be interpreting something new and have your client sign those. So that is an option as well. But when it comes to texting, I know that there are platforms now, and I've even heard of some managed care organizations that are pushing more for this text-based therapy. And I'm wondering what your reactions are to this kind of a treatment modality. And for those of you who can't just talk to us as you're listening to this, <laughs> join our Facebook group. So that way we can further develop this as a conversation. So ask to join the Modern Therapist Survival Guide group and help us further these conversations. My response is really one of wanting to learn. Like I said before, I want to make sure that we have that. But I, I would love to hear in the Facebook group from folks who are doing text therapy, whether it's actually texting on a phone or, or emails back and forth, and, and how you found it, what you think about it, and, and maybe we can have a, a separate episode on that. But I think understanding how these things can go wrong need to inform your work, no matter if you absolutely don't text your clients or if you do it just for logistics or if you do it as part of the treatment. I think really thinking about how it can go wrong is really critical. And so I think in this situation, it was a message to the wrong person. There was no context around it. And clearly that's just, you know, if there's something that's a, a little uh, off the cuff, maybe irreverent, that kind of stuff, when you're texting anyone, those types of things, maybe double checking that you're not texting anybody in your therapy practice. <laughs> what did the, what did the message say that you sent to me, Kurt? The dance, like no one's watching. Dance, like no one's watching and email, like it's going to be read in a deposition. <laughs> and I think texting can go along with that too. I think it's, it's something where when something is in writing that people can access, which is texting, emails, social media, private messages, as well as comments online, really think about what you're putting out there because it can be shared in, in avenues that can harm you in your own life, but also with your therapeutic relationships. And so 
I think that's an important reminder. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Looking at what you put out there, once somebody has the opportunity to screen grab it, it can be sent anywhere. So this might even be other professionals that you need to watch what you're texting or accidentally texting when you think that you might be texting somebody else. Mm -hmm. In considering that, this is where our professionalism does creep into our personal lives a lot more. And in looking at some of these situations where text therapy, where it can go into many hours of the night or and I'm really unfamiliar with how these programs work, if it's something that therapists log into, if it's something that has push notifications out to their phone. But it does bring up kind of an ethical question of if there's an emergency that's needing to be responded to and you're seeing one of these texts, you do have an obligation to respond in a somewhat timely manner when you know something's going on. And you might not always be in those positions of being in the best state to respond to that kind of stuff. One of the things that's come up in my life over the last several years is the addition of having young children into my house who won't let me have a full night of sleep. (laughs) So if I happen to pick up my phone in the middle of the night and see, and this hasn't happened, but if it was an emergency situation and it's one, two, three o'clock in the morning, I'm not in the most wakeful state of mind at that point. And I'm having to make an ethical decision of, Do I need to respond? How do I hold my boundaries? Is this somebody that is now going to know that I'm awake at all hours of the day and on call to respond to them when that's really not what my practice is designed around? I've had uh, some conversations with folks who practice DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, and they have a practice of doing coaching calls. They don't do text, but they do coaching calls in between sessions to help kind of give more in vivo kind of feedback and support, helping folks to to talk things through, really, you know, kind of beefing up coping skills. I may be saying the wrong words, but this is my understanding of it. And I really liked what one of my colleagues had said about when they respond, because theoretically it's 24-7, right? Theoretically, there's this piece of, you know, if somebody's going to freak out, they're going to freak out at, at any moment, you know, and and a DBT therapist who's doing coaching calls needs to be available. But 
being able to even put parameters around that where this is when I'm going to respond, whether it's by text or if it's setting up a phone call or if it's responding to a message, whatever those things are, I think putting those up front really help. And the way that she described how she would choose when to call back is, is using the DBT phrase, when she can be in wise mind. And so if she's been out for a special night with her her husband or if there's if it's two in the morning, those types of things. If she recognizes that she can't be in wise mind, she will then wait to respond until she can be so that she can provide the support that's needed. But that really means putting parameters around if someone's suicidal, if someone's homicidal, if someone has an emergency that there is a safety plan in place and that the, that it's clear that the therapist is not going to be that resource in the moment unless that's the the treatment contract that's been set up. And I think that can be really tough. I've had my own situation where I actually responded to someone who was in crisis after hours. And I had to then go back and, and walk back the, the boundaries because that wasn't something that I was always available to do. I wasn't always on my email or on my, my texting at 10 at night. And I didn't want that to be the expectation. I didn't want to be the safety plan for that time of night. And so I was able to have that conversation with that client and say, hey, I've done a disservice here because I happened to respond in the moment that was not our treatment agreement and I've shifted the the boundaries. So let's shift it back. And we talked about how to set those boundaries in a way where she was still able to keep herself safe and we were able to move forward. So I think it's even in when you, you know, kind of set it up, if it if it's something where as a human being sometimes you slip up or decided you need to shift the boundaries, I think having that conversation and whether it's shifting the informed consent and having them sign it or just really have it a deep conversation where you plan how you're going to move forward. I think that could be very helpful. Really what this means is that text messages traditionally, as far as our therapy practices go, tend to fall into one of two categories. One is the administrative stuff that the scheduling clients, this kind of stuff that it seems like is becoming more and more prevalent or acceptable by most clinicians, at least in private practice, but in some other settings too. And the other is the clinical texts and really delineating in that informed consent of what is acceptable and what's not. And that as clients breach that informed consent, that it's your responsibility to bring it back up to them and document how you've handled those parameters in case one of those situations really does come up that is not against what's allowed. Because there's very easily imagined a prosecuting attorney saying, well, you kept allowing it, so therefore your informed consent wasn't really that much of of something that you're really sticking to. I think another major issue with this is if you are engaging in some of that clinical work with clients that you're recognizing some of the jurisdictional boundaries because this now allows for you to be in communication with clients who are in different states that it might have different rules and different emergency rules wherever they are. So you do need to be aware of a lot of the other things that do go along with telehealth when it comes to text messages. And some places are going to require that all of your work that is clinical is done through a HIPAA compliant device. So you might think that what you're doing is providing something that's a benefit to your client and taking a lot more risk along with it, even if you don't intend to. I think that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it in exactly that way. I think oftentimes when we have clients who travel or if we have licenses in more than one state or there's a, you know, we have a client in a state that doesn't 
has reciprocity or that kind of stuff, we can end up really crossing state lines. We can, we can end up in those situations. And I think it's important to just really pay attention and, and do the best possible practice that you can in trying to make sure your communication is appropriate, it's focused, and it complies with your consent for treatment that hopefully will be sufficient to, to navigate through those different legal hurdles. <laughs> Whether you're required to be HIPAA compliant or not, I think that it's important that at a bare minimum, if you are texting clients, you have to password protect your phone because this is something where if you end up violating HIPAA rules that you don't even want to be HIPAA compliant or not, then if you only have a work phone with a couple of client messages in it. It's one thing where you still have to notify your clients, but if you've got a giant roster of all of your contacts all together in one singular phone, whether it's personal or professional, that if you lose that phone or if somebody accesses it and you have hundreds and hundreds of contacts, you might be having to reach higher and higher levels of announcing the breach to the public. So even though your Aunt Sue is one of your contacts, if she's amongst clients that you've communicated with and your phone has been breached, you might need to be taking out advertisements and publications about your practice majorly violating HIPAA compliance rules. Yeah, and I think that being a covered entity, you know, so I, I take insurance, I have to comply with HIPAA across all the different mechanisms that I do. And so it's important to make sure that you have HIPAA compliant email that you've password protected your phone that you're really standing by, you know, kind of the safety of the the communication or the security of the the communication. I think that even when you're billing out of network or you're, you know, you have some of these other pieces, you get a single case agreement, kind of all of a sudden you're a covered entity. So I think making sure that you really try to hold the strongest levels of privacy and security and and keeping your information confidential can just serve you in the long run. So clearly if we look at texts, you know, they can go to the wrong person, they can be misinterpreted. We can try to use our snarky sense of humor and that can come across. What about email? Uh, what are the things that that can go wrong in email that you've seen, Kurt? Well, there's always stories, and this is from the smallest practices all the way up to the largest corporations of sending an email to the wrong person, that especially the longer that you're in practice, then you might think that you're sending something to Katie Vernoy when it's actually going to Katie Smith. I'm making names up here, or at least that one of the two. That is actually my name, though, so you didn't make that up. Yes. <laughs> You might intend to send an email to the Katie that we love on this show, and it actually ends up to Katie Smith. And no matter what sort of disclaimer that you put at the bottom, that email is still out there. And that disclaimer doesn't necessarily protect you from whatever happens once that email leaves your your web mm -hmm. browser. So th there's always the risk of something being sent someplace else. I'm a little bit more on the risk averse side of sending out too much information in any sort of written communication because so much does get lost in the translation of things that I, and plus I don't want to document much more than what I put in my session notes anyway. So if somebody really wants an opinion on something, we'll talk about it in session and I can document it and they can 
generally request that from me and I don't have any problem sharing client records with them. But there's also issues of your HIPAA compliance might come across through your email as well, that you can't just send super bills from a Hotmail or a Gmail account that you do need to pay for the upgraded encrypted levels that doesn't just look at, you know, the potential of those giant email breaches that we see happening all the time anyway. Yeah, I think making sure that you have the right tools to keep your communication secure is important as a professional. I think it can be kind of a pain, some of those things, you know, whether it's having a portal that people have to log into or some of the different pieces. And so it can feel like communication gets clunky, but I think being able to to have that option so people know their information is secure, that they're not going to be part of those big data breaches on unsecure emails. I think that can be really a relief for a lot of people. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. I think an additional point I want to make is that there's also those things of trying to have access and easy communication. And so I think there is a balance there. And I know, you know, my clients do text if they need to make a, you know, need to schedule a phone call, that kind of stuff. And, you know, the text is not necessarily HIPAA compliant, although I do have my clients' names as code names <laughs> in my phone, not as their full name. So hopefully that would at least provide some security. And I do have my phone password protected and all of that good stuff. But I think it's the other piece is kind of the thoughtfulness of what's being communicated. I think that's another important piece. And so I liked that you said that. Just in this entire space, there's also the use of things like emojis mm. and how that reflects on how your clients think of you. So if you're working with professional people and you happen in your private life to be more of an emoji or a text abbreviation, LOL, BRB, <laughs> U for the U, what are you people doing with all of your extra time not typing out the rest of your letters? But <laughs> You sound like an old man right but, now, Kurt. <laughs> and I work with teens. <laughs> But if you are working with people in an educated professional capacity and you're, even though it's becoming more and more of the cultural zeitgeist, the use of emojis and text speak can really make people question you even more than if you were to be talking with them in person. So this still adds to that professionalism sort of thing, but really reflect back how that can be interpreted by somebody who's going through a crisis or even just in developing some sort of a texting relationship with them. Yeah, I just I was thinking of something kind of funny when you were talking because if you're going to use uh, the the BRB or LOL, make sure you understand what they mean. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of people. This is one I've heard more than once, where uh, you know someone who wasn't quite sure thought LOL was lots of love, and that's a very different <laughs> response than laugh out loud. I have seen. So that. if somebody says, you know, I'm I'm really having a hard time. I, you know, I just need some, you know, some support from you, oh, therapist, and you say, LOL. 
<laughs> that would be pretty bad. So I think it's making sure that when you're communicating and, you know, double checking before you hit send, but uh, that you're using language that's going to actually communicate what you're trying to communicate. I think emojis actually can help with that sometimes because I'll say something that's a little bit more logistic. And, you know, it's like if I don't use an exclamation point or, you know, I just use a period or no period. I mean, there's like, there's kind of a given emotional quality to some of those things. And so sometimes I try, I'll use a little smiley face emoji to say like, Hey, we're scheduling this. And I'm glad that you let me know that you couldn't be here, you know, that kind of stuff instead of like, thanks, period. Uh, well, I'll see you next time, period. It's like, you know, <laughs> you know, I think that emojis could help. I've noticed how dismissing that period is in texts, that there's a huge difference between sure with no period and sure oh, and I almost with have the opposite. I almost have the opposite. When somebody says sure, no period, it's like they couldn't even take the time to put the period there. <laughs> you can even hear the disagreement between Katie and I who do generally get along and know where each other's coming from of just our different interpretations of what the same thing might mean. And so this is something where if you are engaging in this world, there's a whole second language that goes along with this. And there's so much that can be misinterpreted that in a lot of ways, it kind of makes me even shy away from even the logistical stuff that I do with clients anyway, as far as running five minutes late, okay, come up whenever you're here. Like, Thanks with a period or um, no period or an exclamation point. <laughs> Thanks. That, yeah. Now, now it's now it's an existential <laughs> therapeutic thought of do I put a period? Or I not? think it's basically proceed with caution and understand who you're actually texting with, communicating with. I think, regardless of the medium, I think if the if the communication format is really only written. So this is text, this is email, it could be a private message on a social media site, it could be comments on a Facebook post or an Instagram post. When you're communicating via a, a written method, I think it's important to be as clear as you can be, but recognizing that there's a lot of room for misinterpretation and just being really cautious. I wonder, I, I know I have a couple of stories of people that I've pulled from online who've had the, the, the I love you meant for a spouse <laughs> that gets sent to a client that they've had to laugh off. I've, I've known people who um, have had something autocorrected that completely transformed mm -hmm. what was meant. And I'm not remembering specifically what, what came up, but I remember from one of the groups, it was somebody typed something about the Confederates doing something good when it was entirely meant for something else that had nothing <laughs> to do with the Civil War. But <laughs> I think one of the, the funny ones that's happened to me is a parent of one of my teenage clients texted me one day out of the blue, hey, sweetie, it's noon. Oh, no. And <laughs> this, this is a... a grizzled war veteran who is calling me sweetie <laughs> all of a sudden. Embarrassingly, later, he came to me and told me that he was trying to wake up his daughter who was living in a different time zone. <laughs> and the text message was intended for her yeah. rather than for me. <laughs> I don't know that I have hilarious situations. I did have a, a and I love you and a kind of a dot, dot, dot. I don't remember what else I had said that was meant for my mom that I sent to a client, but that one I was able to 
to immediately say texted the wrong person and it was from a different phone number. So I don't know that they knew it was me. So there wasn't really any reason to go into it. But I've certainly had people private message me and clients private message me on Facebook wanting to connect on Facebook. And I've been very clear in the response to those that, so I guess this isn't hilarious, but just kind of how people can connect to me online in a professional capacity and that I don't communicate via private message. And so they can either call or email to set up a an appointment or a phone call, that kind of stuff. So, so I guess not super funny. Sorry. <laughs> this stuff extends to email. It extends to interacting with people on social media. The, the, I think the takeaway here is really just it, do what you're doing mindfully. Make sure that you're following the laws. Make sure that you're not putting yourself into a situation where uh, a lawyer on the opposite side of the deposition table is needing to read to you. Now, why did you send an eggplant <laughs> emoji to this client? So make sure that you're doing what you intend to do, that it's being received in the way that you intend it. And if it's an area that you're really not ready to take on this level of responsibility, you probably shouldn't do it. That in referring to this disciplinary action case earlier, the ultimate charge ended yeah. up being negligence. And, you know, this is something where laws, ethics take a while to update to what's happening with technology. And I do encourage advocacy towards all of the professional groups of having them examine their ethics codes and how they handle technology. Some are more at the forefront than others, but the field of therapy, the people who've been practicing for a very long time, and you even hear it from us who seem to be pushing the envelope in a lot of other areas of there's a lot of risk that can potentially be there surrounding communications through text message, even emails or other types of written words. So be careful with what you're doing. And I think be prepared with ways that you can repair. Because I know for me, if there's been miscommunication uh, via text, email, whatever, I think the strongest thing that you can do is really be able to take a breath, recognize an error has been made, and be very thoughtful in your response and how you repair. Because I think that was another uh, issue in this this. Uh, Disciplinary action was the response. The quick response was also, I think, part of the problem uh, that it wasn't as thoughtful as maybe it could have been. So I think just understanding that part of our jobs as therapists is to improve communication, to, to be one of those relationships where these things can be navigated through, but in your professional capacity to be as conscious as possible with your communication so that these don't happen. And then if they do, being very thoughtful in how you make those repairs. So I think that's I think that's a good way to a good place to finish. <laughs> Check out our show notes. We'll put a couple of articles in here about some things to consider with texting relationships with clients. And you can check out our show notes on our website, mtsgpodcast.com. I imagine that some of this stuff is going to come up at our Therapy Reimagined conference coming up in October as well as far as navigating the 21st century as therapists. So we'd love to have you join us out here in Los Angeles for our wonderful two-day event. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.
Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.